You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with David McRaney, who is a journalist, book author, and speaker, and a host of a podcast, and the podcast is named after your first book. Which is, or actually the book, I guess, is named after the pot. Well, I can't remember which way it went. Podcast after the, after the book, yep. Yeah. And the book is called You Are Not So Smart, which I recently reread, which is just full of, it's a compendium of different, mm-hmm. I guess we might call them irrationalities. We'll have to dig into that mm-hmm. term a bit. And that was followed up by this other book called You Are Now Less Dumb. And then the final book is How Minds Change. And the sequence of the books and the title of the books, I think seems to reflect a change in your thinking. I feel like you started off finger pointing, pointing out all of the irrationalities Mm -hmm. that humans have and bad decision rules that people follow. And then the second book is like, well, okay, here's how you go about fixing these things. Now that you're aware of them, here's how you can go about fixing them. And then it seems like the third book is really much more optimistic. It's less about describing how people are trapped in these bad equilibria. I was in the right place at the right time. I was very lucky. I was one of the first, I was out there in blog world when that was a thing, when you could, before social media. And I got a book deal out of having a blog that was talking about biases and fallacies and heuristics. Today, you could ask anybody, what's confirmation bias? And people generally have an idea what that is, even though they usually describe it in a way that's not quite exactly what it is. But there's or Dunning-Kruger effect, things like that. These were, those were things I was introducing to a general audience and that I got swept up into that era when blogs were being offered book deals. Shit my dad says, awkward family photos, stuff white people like. Those were all big blogs that got pulled into that world. That They were blogs that could work as books. And with that, when my second book came out, I wanted to promote it. And I was like, these podcast things are a new thing. So I've had a podcast for more than 10 years now, which is, puts me as one of the old timers of podcasting. OG. For real. I remember I sent an email to Mark Maron because he had the most popular podcast at the time. I was like, hey, how do you do this? And believe it or not, he sent me an email with a bullet point hyperlinked list of stuff off Amazon to buy. That's how small the world was back then. And with that came, I started inviting lots and lots of scientists on the show to talk about the stuff that I'd written about. And I slowly developed a nice beat out of this, the beat of human reasoning and decision-making and judgment and a network of people that I could hang out with and talk to. And then when you do a show like that, you're reading a research paper or two or three every episode or a book every episode, and you start to give yourself your own version of a higher level degree in all these things. I came out of psychology mm-hmm. and journalism with a degree in both, and then slowly worked my way into this bigger world of having a very narrow beat. And then going out on the road, talking to people, everything, I started moving into those worlds where there was all these, there were all these communities, especially in that early phase of finding the others on the internet. There's the big ass skeptics world and the hum- rationalists and the humanists, and then the, all the scientists who study those things. And over time, those worlds have schismed and have done all sorts of stuff that I either approve of or very much disapprove of. And I've found my place in all that. Along the way though, like I started having deep questions about watching the world catch up to me like with brexit and trump and COVID and many of the other things that happened anti-vaxxing and the rise of not necessarily the rise of the conspiratorial thinking but the rise of conspiratorial thinking as a political as a unit of political interest and so i started adapting the show to that 
And I started having these big questions just personally, watching how people change their minds on a variety of different issues. And the real inflection point was I was doing a lecture and afterward a young woman came up and asked me about her father who had fallen into a conspiratorial community. And she asked, what can I do about that? What can I say to him? And I said, nothing. I said, I told her that word. I said, nothing. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't, I was still in that mindset of, it was received wisdom on my part saying, you can't reason a person out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. And I just wrote, said that to this person and felt it coming out of my mouth. Like, I don't know if I actually believe that. And also, I don't know if I should be giving that kind of advice if I don't know what I'm talking about. And also, I'm way more optimistic than this, I think, in my core. So I wanted, I was like, I want to go actually explore that as a topic. And I started doing it on the show, but also I started going out on the road. It started becoming way bigger than any podcast could ever be. And at the same time, same-sex marriage norms and opinions in the United States drastically changed during this time period. I was, I was having this thought and this problem in my own like thinking. And at the same time, I looked around and 68% of the United States public went from a, opposed to four on an issue that they were having arguments about at the level of any other wedge issue today. It's hard to even believe that now. But if you were to get into a time machine and go back 10, 12 years, people argued on the internet and in newspapers about same-sex marriage, the way they argue about gun control and immigration today. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of issue. And now it seems ridiculous that people would have that kind of discussion. I know there's always a brewing undercurrent in political discourse where people are weird about that. But for the most part, America has flipped on this. So I had this question. I was like, okay, if I, put, if I took all those people and I put them in a time machine and put them back 10 years ago and they met themselves, they would disagree with themselves. So what changed their mind? I don't mean like what political activism changed their mind, which is in the book, but I wanted to know what happened in their brain. I'm talking about neurons all the way up. I'm even lower than that. I'm talking about like action potentials and gates and sodium ion channels all the way up to large, gigantic abstractions and then social movements. I wanted to understand something that I really did not understand, which is how do minds change, which by extension would go into how do you change minds and why do they resist? What are social movements made of and so on? And I went out on the road for this and what happened was I changed my own mind. I never intended for that to be some sort of like marketing thing where I was going to say, in writing a book about how much minds change, I changed my mind about how minds change. But it really happened. And it comes back to that irrationality thing you said. Like I was part of that pop science wave of saying, look how stupid we all are. Look how irrational and flawed human reasoning is. And there are plenty of books that rode that way with me, like Predictably Irrational, even Thinking Fast and Slow is often used in that discussion. But the research since has really, (laughs) it turns out that we were doing a couple of different things. The peanut butter and chocolate of my comeuppance are, one, a lot of the studies that pop psychology, that goes out into pop psychology and that journalists like myself would write about and people would write books about. Those studies in psychology and in other social sciences were often done on individuals in isolation. And then you pool all of what people do in isolation together and treat that like what people do, as if that's a example of human beings when they are behaving out in the natural world. And a lot of those experiments, as they've been going through this replication crisis surge, is if you take that exact same experiment, even things like the ball and bat problem from the cognitive reflection task, and you offer people the opportunity not to do it in isolation, but to do it with two or three other people, you don't get the same results. And it makes it seem like people aren't exactly irrational. You just put them in a very particular situation in which 
some of the native functions of human reasoning don't get employed very well. And then the other thing that is I got to meet Hugo Mercier and work with him on his fantastic interactionist model of human reasoning that showed that it's not that we're so much we're flawed and irrational, we're just biased and lazy, which looks like the same thing. But if you are committing, if confirmation bias will cause you to look upon those the, the results of this research and what people do in political discourse and say, yeah, see, that's a good example of what I thought how people worked, but it's much more complicated than that. And then Tom Stafford, I'll stop here because I have, I could obviously never answer another question, but the Tom Stafford, the great cognitive psychologist of the UK, he's been working on something he calls the truth wins scenario where he was, he's taking a lot of this old research and he's employing it or he's reframing it and doing it in groups and showing that a lot of how we behave online, a lot of how we behave in social media environments is similar to the way we were studying people in isolation where it feels like we're being really irrational and silly in these social media environments, but it's because oftentimes it's people are put into isolation and they behave in a way they would behave alone, but it feels like we're together. It feels like we're all in a group having a conversation, but we're not. It's not like we walked out of a movie and we all stood in a circle. And back in the day, it would be where we all light a cigarette and we were like, what do you think of that? And then we have this conversation where our initial impressions get shaped by other people's impressions and we Venn diagram each other. It feels like that's what we're doing on Twitter or Facebook or any of these other social platforms, but it's not. We tend to say, what did you think of it? Oh, you don't, you disagree with me. Let me go over here where other people are having a conversation I prefer. And we self, you know, segregate ourselves into these mental like tribes. And so all that together, I was like, oh, I have to jump into this. And the whole book is a record and not just me explaining it and understanding it and doing the journalistic stuff, but also you watching me go, oh, I think I might have been very wrong about this. And I'm very sorry, everybody. Let's look at it like this, because the science has evolved and matured since then. And this is where I'm at now. So now my current position is no, we're not flawed and irrational. We're biased and lazy. And no, there's no one who's unreachable, no one who's unchangeable. And you absolutely can reason somebody out of a position they didn't reason themselves into. But you have to let them do the reasoning. And there's a process for that. It's a guided metacognition space holding sort of thing. So all of that is my gigantic answer to say, yeah, 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 you're right about that. (laughs) Well, what's interesting about your journey is that you're actually very conscious of your change in perspective. Mm -hmm. One of the more interesting features of the book is how you connect this idea of change blindness, which is a well-known cognitive phenomenon, to mind changing Mm -hmm. and how people don't seem to be aware of the fact that they're changing their mind. And at the beginning of the book, you talk a bit about mind changing as this punctuated equilibrium Mm. where there are these epiphanies and so forth. But that's one view of how people change their mind, right? The scales fall from your eyes and you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I've been wrong all this time. More often what happens is that these changes happen in a way that we're not even aware. And and that the example of same-sex marriage, it makes me wonder, are we in a time, uh, it's very hard. I'm an historian and so I'm always very suspicious of my subjective impressions (laughs) of contemporary world. And sometimes you think everybody's eating organic food, but it's actually just like this tiny 1% of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think everybody's using green energy, but it's no, you're just in Berkeley. It's different. <laughs> I was just in Berkeley and I totally commiserate as a person that moves between the deep South and the coast and the yeah. coasts. Yeah. It is wild to see people not aware of that. No, you, it's just you guys over here doing that. So I think a lot of people think that we are in a golden age of irrationality, mm-hmm. but in many ways, I think that can't possibly be no. true. I think we're in a golden age of rationality in many senses. Yeah. The proliferation of blogs and books like yours and the proliferation of books like Danny Kahneman's. 
it's hard to imagine that we really are. I just go back and look at the when people see these conspiracy theories, they pale in comparison Absolutely. to the Salem witchcraft yeah. trials, right? Yeah, it's just phenom- these are just psychological phenomena. These are just how this is how people work. And then you change the social structures, you change the technological opportunities, you alter socioeconomic status and opportunities to do the, the, every, as everything shifts, the things that we've been doing for millions of years are in new environments and they adapt to that and they manifest in new ways, but Oftentimes, to borrow something from Clay Shirky, all that happens is the cost to exert or exhibit a behavior becomes so low that it floods into the system. And in some places, it's like an invasive species. We've seen that with social media, I think. Like you, there are many very like just what people do stuff that we were doing in those spaces, but it's never had an opportunity to proliferate the way it can there. And with no guardrails, with no moderation with just saying like anything goes, you get all sorts of dumb stuff, which is what people have done all throughout history. I'm a very Marshall McLuhan kind of guy when it comes to all this. Like we are fortunate or unfortunate. We'll see in a couple generations about from Gen Z all the way through the boomers, we all get to be the in-betweeners. We are the people who are, we went from one very understandable but chaotic information ecosystem to a new information ecosystem with tools we've never had before. And we are not good at it yet. We do not have a literacy Mm. for it yet. And everything is very transient right now. It's not like going from VHS to DVD. It's not like going from audio cassette to CD-ROM. It's more like going from scrolls to printing press, but it's even more so than that because Everyone has a printing press. It's like if we invented the printing press and then everyone got one in the mail, that would have been a very different world. And it's a huge leap that we've made. And now that we're in it, I think there's a sense that like, okay, now we're here. We have not arrived at wherever we're going. We are still in that long transition phase. So it's like with the printing press, there's a shock to the system and we got religious wars out of that and then things settled down after we figured out how to deal with this. Some of the things that are very ancient in human psychology are awakened here, which is one bandied about for a while. There was this, are we in a post truth world was a thing that came out. It was like a, a yeah. new satanic panic for a certain type of people, especially among journalists and academics. It was like, oh no, we're in post truth world. People don't I like the earth is round. Everybody what's going on with you. And then it got into politics where it turned out some of the untapped pockets of the United States that were already organized could be tapped for political gain. So why not grab some of these conspiratorial communities and, they rose to the surface of our like discourse, but all the researchers that I talk to who study conspiratorial thinking, conspiratorial communities are adamant about the fact that there is not a larger number of these people in the world. There's not some sort of rise in conspiracy theories. It's If anything, it's slowly like coasting along at the level it always was at. But what is new is using it for political gain in this way. Which is not necessarily super new because in the Civil War of the United States, it was very useful to grab pockets of conspiratorial communities and use them to gain. So it's always just been a part of us. What's different is this lapel camera effect where it's like there's always been misbehavior among police officers in a way that we should consider heinous and we should crush. But for me to open up my phone while I'm waiting for my taco and then go flip flip between a cat video and a and police brutality, that's very new. That's no, We've never had anything like that. And the downstream psychological impact of that is not so much post-truth where there are alternative facts and all this kind of stuff. It's more like post-trust. And I'm not exactly sure which information gatekeeper is the one that is the expert, who is accurate, who is 
has my interests in mind, who has vetted the information, who isn't trying to clickbait me. It's really tough. And Kate Starbird, who researches this, they told me that this is very similar to something that human beings do after a tornado and a hurricane or a flood or a fire or a, even a plane crash or something like that. She calls it collective sense-making, where you enter into a state where rumors are okay because you know that it's going to take a minute for the worldview to coalesce, but right now it's pretty good to deal with dealing rumors because they're information voids. And in that mm-hmm. space, we tend to switch to a mode where we modulate our behavior and our intentions and our decisions on trust. And if it's right after a, a flood or a hurricane, you'll look around and go, okay, this person seems to know what they're talking about. This person told me something and, and you asked them like, how do you know that? And you get a sense of who you should and shouldn't trust. You let it be fluid. Right now, we're in that fluid state, but in a much wider information ecosystem. And all the stuff I've written about for years comes to the surface and it's worth knowing about. And we are in that place where we're trying to change each other's minds about things we consider very important. We're trying to also figure out what is the hierarchy of important things that we should be working on. And yeah, I get it. It's weird, right? None of us, no humans have ever had to deal with this before. We're the first ones. We landed on a new planet. We're all trying to figure it out. I think you said somewhere in the book that reasoning is not logic. I think you might've gotten that from Hugo Mercier, but I think what you're arguing for is a contextual understanding, maybe a functional understanding of what humans are doing. And it's actually in the very first chapter of your very first book, you highlight this contrast, right? So you talk about the ways on selection task. I think that was in the very beginning of your first book. And it highlights this idea that as a logical exercise, when you got cards A through A, C, D and one, two, three, four, we're terrible at it. But then you tell the story, and I do this in my class, in my behavioral oh, I love it. finance class. I love it. When you talk about the going to the bar and you got the underage, mm-hmm. overage, beer, Coke, whatever. It's like, oh, well, no one screws that one up. And so are you rational or irrational? And I think I remember just sitting through a whole bunch of organizational behavior talks for a decade. And when everyone's like, look at this, look how stupid people are. I'm like, hold on, what's the function here, right? Sure. Why, if we are making these mistakes, why is that the case? And I think you're really arguing that when the ecosystem in which you find yourself aligns with the ecosystem in which the reasoning tool evolved, then we're actually pretty yeah. good. But when you know there's a bit of a mismatch, then that's when things don't look so good. You take a rat and you put them in a I don't know, in a maze, in a lab, they're not going to do so well. Yeah, humans are motivated reasoners is what it comes down to. But I don't, let's unpack those for a second if you will allow me this. So if you wanted to define motivated reasoning very quickly, I would use this example, which is if you've ever spent time with a friend who's recently fallen in love with someone and you ask them, what reasons do you have to like this person so damn much? And they say, oh, the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they cut their food, I love it. The, the, The music they're introducing me to. They're producing their reasons for you to justify why they feel so strongly. Mm -hmm. And then when that same person is breaking up with that exact same person and you ask them, what reasons do you have to break up with this person? They'll say, "Ah, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, the dumb music they make me listen to. So the reasons for will become reasons against Mm -hmm. when the motivation to search for reasons to justify your current emotional state changes. Mm -hmm. So... What's important there for to extrapolate out to the stuff that we do all the time when it comes to arguing about facts and figures and politics and hypotheticals and abstractions is that the facts often remain inert. They stay the same and the reasons didn't change. Your motivation to search for reasons changed. And what you will do is go through a cherry picking exercise of trying to find the ones out there from all the possible sources that will best justify and rationalize your current position and 
in doing so, we often get this backwards where we start, if you ask someone, why do you believe that? You'll say, because, and you'll list out those mm -hmm. reasons, but that's not why you believe it. The, whatever that is, maybe completely inarticulated and never even considered on your part that motivated you to find these justifications. That's why you chose those justifications, which doesn't even seem like the right same, like you're answering a completely different question. So that being how we actually work, if you wanted to think about it like reason versus reason, like big R reason with logic and propositions and all these fantastic concepts going all the way through rhetoric and formal logic and all these things, all that's real, all that's good, all that's true. These are tools we created like any other language, like from physics to calculus to whatever, like they're incredible thinking tools for making sense of the world. But that's not how brains make sense of the world when it comes to you and I having a conversation. We employ what psychologists would consider reason. And there's just a semantic, like horrible crash of ideas here that I think confuses people and confuses even people who discuss it and write about it. One is not the other. In psychology, reasoning is just coming up with reasons. It's just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe. And in, we innately do this because as in the interactionist model, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, they have a fantastic book about it. It's not an easy read, but I recommend it called The Enigma of Reason. But they take basically all of the research up to now and say, if you actually look at it this way, it all makes a lot more sense. And in that system, reasoning is coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe for the purpose of arriving at some sort of plausible conclusion and plausible is that which you intuit your most trusted peers will accept as reasonable. And this is a system that's always running underneath all of you're in the shower sometimes thinking, what am I going to eat for dinner today? And you're using this system to make that decision. You're actually trying to think what would be the most justifiable and rationalizable thing for that. There's some really great research. I put some of it in the book where you have people, you put them in situations where they have to rationalize their decisions and justify their decisions they will always choose the option that is easiest to justify. And if you deny them the opportunity to justify their decisions, they just stop. They just don't make anything. It's such an important part of how we flow from thinking to acting. I think one of them is if people flip a coin, it's not actual flip a coin. You give people a piece of paper that says you have flipped a coin. If it comes up heads, you win $200. If it comes up tails, you lose $100. Then they tell people how it turned out. And then they ask, would you take the exact same? We're gonna, what, would you be willing to do one more round of this? The exact same deal is in play. And they find that when they tell people it came up in their favor, they say, yeah, I'm ahead $200. I would love to flip again. If it came up not in their favor, they say, I'm down 100 I need to flip to win back what I lost. Right. Win or lose, people will pick <laughs> to flip again. But if you do this entire experiment a second time and you do not tell people the outcome of their flip, nobody chooses to flip again, which seems to make no sense at first because we know from the previous experiment, it doesn't matter what I tell you, you'd flip again. So it seems like not telling you the flip shouldn't matter to you because whichever way it goes, you're going to flip again. But if you deny people the information that they will use to justify their decision, they won't make the decision because they can't. We do not make decisions unless we're allowed the opportunity to justify them. And the other side of that spectrum is Unfortunately, that means we'll also tend to only make the decisions that are easiest to justify, not the ones that are quote unquote best or have the most factual evidence underpinning them. So all this plays together into that's what reasoning is all about. And it's wonderful that we have big R reason. It's a real thing. I hope everybody learns how to be better critical thinkers and we can employ it whenever we can. But when we're dealing with our human beings, the system is set up so that we offload the cognitive labor of making sense of the world to the group. 
And as individuals, we will produce our most biased and lazy reasonings just so we can produce an argument very quickly and get it into the mix. And then we can work on it together. And if you deny people that second stage of the flow of things, what happens is you get a lot of people producing a lot of biased and lazy arguments and just piling them into a stack and just walking around it and yelling at it, which pretty much what Twitter is, as far as <laughs> if you don't moderate it well. It is just going to get worse now that some of the guardrails are being taken away. Part of the book is about understanding other people, but a big part of it is about understanding yourself. And if we approach this as philosophers, and I think you're a closet philosopher. Probably, yeah. Uh, you're not just describing, but you're also saying, hey, if you're reading this book, you're probably interested in becoming a better thinker, <laughs> yeah, yeah. a better person. So there's this one experiment that you talk about where People have to pick a poster, right? And they can either just pick it or they have to think about it before they pick it. And usually when they pick it without thinking, they tend to like it. And when they pick it with thinking, then they don't like it. You know, in retrospect, they're not happy with their choice because they have mm. to justify it. And it seems to me that if we're to approach this like a philosopher, then what we would like to do is align those two. Sure. If you knew yourself better and you knew you had a wider collection of justifiable reasons and if we're to try to figure out like what causes that wedge, is it just that people have a poor understanding of themselves and that when they think about reasons, they're trying reasons that they consider to be valid reasons are reasons that they draw from some subset of reasons that are socially acceptable. Presumably as a philosopher, you'd want to align those so that when you think about a choice beforehand, it's usually going to line up with your retroactive evaluation of that choice. And to use the language of Kahneman, your prospective utility and your retrospective utility are not separate <laughs> preference functions. Yeah. I don't know if I've settled on thinking it's good to do this. I think what I've settled on is it's a thing you can do mm -hmm. and we can use it depending on what our desired outcome is. We can play with it right now. If, here's why this happens. I'm going to ask you some questions. This should be just for shits and giggles, but this will help illustrate it. Do you remember the last movie? What's the last movie that you watched that sort of comes to mind easiest for you? I tried to watch some movies night before last and I couldn't get through it. I don't remember the name of it. Okay. What's the last movie you completed that you can remember? Probably a National Theater Live. I don't know if that counts as a movie. National Theater Live. Does it count as a movie? I don't know. It's theater. <laughs> it's theater on this big screen. Does it count? Okay. I can go with that. Did you like it? Yeah. So let's sit inside that for a second and think, let's imagine that you have a side gig as a person who rates these things for a blog. What would you give this particular performance that you watched on a scale from zero to 10, what would you yeah, give it? Nine. Nine. I'm wondering like nine is not 10. So it seems there must've been something that kept it from getting to 10. Does it come to mind easily what that would be? Yeah. I didn't walk out of there like, oh my God, that was the best experience of my life. Yeah. So how come? It's probably because of what I ate before the, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. When somebody asks me why I did something or why I liked something, I always say, I have a theory. I look at myself as I would look at some animal in the forest. I try to take an outside perspective. And then I ultimately realize that I don't really know, but I have some internal thoughts about it, but uh, I'm always wary about them. And obviously this is, you can see what we're illustrating here. It's very easy to go. I liked it. Yeah. Because you're just sampling yeah. some sort of affective emotional state and an attitudinal, like it's being generated without your permission, without your control. It exists within you. It's no different than being creeped out in an abandoned hospital or eating a piece of tiramisu and being like, God, oh, this is good. I don't need to know what's happening at the level of chemicals inside my body yeah. that is giving rise to all of this. 
the immense chain of metabolic functions that go all the way up into whatever is happening and all the associations, the dense associative architecture of my memory and experiences of my family and life to get here. Or if I go into an abandoned hospital, there may be things going on there that are evolutionarily plugged into my system. The things that help me survive in situations where I'm like, this is not a safe space. Predation could happen here. Mm-hmm. It feels like yeah. that may be getting triggered. So I don't need to know all those things to have the feeling that I'm having. And the same thing with watching a great movie or reading a great book. I can just go, I like it or I don't like it. Is there a movie you can think of that you just absolutely hate that just comes to mind? Like, I hate that movie. Uh, I probably wouldn't sit through it. <laughs> Yeah, like what is the, what's the movie? Oliver Stone movie like 20 years ago. I walked out I 10 minutes <laughs> in. I was like, I don't want to deal with this. So if I ask you what, what, like just now, I was like, why didn't you give it a 10? You can feel yourself changing gears. Yeah, and yeah. oftentimes when I do that with people, like they'll say that um, whom moment is huge. You've just entered into metacognition. Yeah. And there's a shocking realization oftentimes, even when it's something you're obsessed with or you're a nerd about, like going, huh, I haven't thought about this. I don't think this way. I don't metacognate on these things. I just sort of go down the river of my experience. And then in that state, here's what we know from bazillions of research papers in this domain. When I do ask you for your reasons, it's not a guarantee you're going to give me the actual reasons. You're going to attempt. You're going to attempt to introspect. But we're very bad at introspection. There's a whole literature domain of called the introspection illusion. It shows we are very, very poor at producing the actual antecedents of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors. But we're very good at producing what seems like a plausible yeah. reason for our thoughts, feelings, behaviors. And plausible changes depending on the audience. Sometimes if I just met you, if you're a stranger, I'm trying to suss out, okay, what are your trigger points and what are you up to? And what can I say that'll keep this conversation going or end it if I think that you're maybe dangerous in some way? Or if you're somebody I've known for a long time, and we've all experienced this, we're recording this right after Thanksgiving. Like if you're getting into a discussion with someone and they ask your reasons for why you think a certain way and if your audience is your family, it's going to be a different set of reasons than if your audience is a trusted peer. So this reasoning production thing that takes place, when you actually care, you actually want to know the real reason why mm-hmm. I'm acting, feeling, thinking this way. It's not a simple task. And, the reasons uh, are different from causes, right? So if I say, what caused you to enjoy that movie? Great then point, I think yeah. that expands your set of potential explanations. Because then you're, I think it probably prime you to think more about I had a bad day at work or or something like that. You're making a great point. So so if we're discussing, uh, do you believe the earth is flat? And you say, yes, the earth is flat. And then I ask you, what reasons do you have to believe the earth is flat? You're going to try to demonstrate to me that you have done your due diligence in this evidence or this source is not trustworthy because we're trying to sort out something that is or is not so factually. But if I ask you about this movie that you watched and I say, did you like it or not? Now I'm trying to suss out, why did you hold this particular attitude? And this is a very important point because I noticed early on when people say, I want to change your mind or I want to change my mind or I did change my mind or I'm interested in persuasion, we often get it confused as to what it is we're attempting to persuade someone to change. Is it, are we trying to change their certainty and a fact-based belief? Are we trying to change the, their attitude from positive, negative, or the other way or from ambivalent into one of the two? Or are we trying to adjust their value structure, saying, you don't care enough about this, and I think that we should talk about it in a way where that moves up or down. Techniques, if you think you're working on one and you're not, you can actually do harm to your cause. This is like if I was trying to convince you that the president, the current president's a bad president, 
it sounds like a fact, doesn't it? It sounds like a belief. I believe the president is a bad president. But I'm, what I'm really trying to affect is your attitude mm-hmm. on this matter. And that's different because your attitude isn't informed by beliefs. It also informs the way you go searching for evidence. Different thing. There's all sorts of words we could use, like causes versus reasons. But at the end of the day, the system that I'm going to be interacting with is the one that really worries about justifying rationalizing and explaining things to ourselves and others. And it's through those channels that you will sort out why somebody's resisting you. If we continued that conversation, I'm not going to do that, but if we were going to continue the thing about the movie that you watched. What I would hope to get out of that is, is help you on your own side of the conversation. You start to get a better idea of what values do you seem to bring to the table that will cause you to say, I'm out of here. I'm not even going to finish this movie. Or have you stick with it long enough to go, you know what? I'd give that a nine. Like we may not be aware of those. We may have never articulated those. And without having an understanding of our own value set, it makes us poor participants in any conversation, especially the public discourse that goes into changing the way laws work and the way that we interact with each other at the social scale. So that's part of the thing I'm proselytizing. So I'm interested in these workshops you do because I've done a workshop on critical thinking for incoming MBAs Mm. for the last couple of years. And I always start with this fight versus flight affective experience part where seems like the very first thing that you do whenever you interact with another human being is you size them up friend or foe, right? That's the most important. If you're an amoeba, you're like, hey, is this food or is this a predator or whatever? It's so primary and that shapes everything that follows. And so part of what you're doing, I think, is not just describing how this mechanism works, but also helping people to, you know, leverage it to some extent. If you're the persuader, then you need to tap into this empathic cognition But then presumably if you're the persuadee, you also have to work to suppress that immediate reaction in many cases. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there are other situations where you need to activate it. I was talking to Bob Cialdini about this. There's going to be situations where people are trying to make you feel like a friend when you should view them as a foe. And there's going to be other situations Mm -hmm. where you view them as a foe when you should view them as a friend. Most of the cases of persuasion you talk about in the book are people who are essentially trying to persuade people in a way that we would view as positive to kind of debunk things. And you didn't spend a lot of time talking about people using those exact same techniques to lead people down the wrong path. I appreciate that you're asking that. And when I just came back from this recent book tour, that question always comes up. Could bad people do this to do bad things? And the answer is sure. But the techniques that I'm talking about in this book, that's why I love that Chaudini comes up a lot because like, I was very adamant that I was not going to write How to Win Friends and Influence People Part 2 or Reboot It or 2022 or whatever they do with it. Because I'm advocating for a conversational dynamic where I'm not actually trying to win this and I don't want you to lose. I'm not trying to show that I'm right and that you're wrong. I'm not even really honestly trying to persuade you of anything. What I want is for us to notice, oh, wait, we disagree. And we could be disagreeing Mm -hmm. about something, whether um, we may disagree about the facts of the matter. We may disagree that the, the, our attitudes may not be the same and they could be on different poles or my value structure says, I don't know why anybody would care about that thing that you care about or vice versa. So we could meet at those levels of disagreement. And instead of trying to absolutely destroy you with facts and links from the internet and YouTube videos and conversational techniques that would be like mic drop moments where you would be burned if you were put it up on TikTok and people like, damn, I got to destroy that dude. I'm not advocating for any of that. What I want you to do is go marvel at the fact that you disagree Mm -hmm. and say, what if instead of we faced off in this, what if we went shoulder to shoulder and said, I wonder why we disagree. 
And could we work together on a shared goal? And that goal would be to understand why we disagree. In so doing, hopefully the outcome is we both end up going, oh, wait, we're both wrong. Mm -hmm. And because clearly this is something that one perspective could never understand. It's like trying to look at a mountain from one angle and trying to make sense of it. Like we need multiple perspectives to get a 3D, four-dimensional concept in play that we could both say, okay, maybe like this. So I want to find the places where that can happen. And the typical way that we interact with each other, especially in social media environments, make this, just take this off the table completely. And they evoke reactance, as they would say in psychology, that feeling that your agency is being stolen or that you're being manipulated or you're being coerced into taking a position or accepting that your position is incorrect. And that's just going to generate reactance. And for anybody who's never heard of reactance, it's like if your room looks like a big pile of garbage as a teenager and your mom says you need to clean your room, you may know intuitively, you may absolutely agree with your mom. I do need to clean my room. When she tells you to go clean your room, you go make it look worse because you're, yeah. she's taking away your, you reacting as if your agency is a threat. We all do that. In any conversation, we feel like the other person is not respecting our agency. So what I'm advocating for in my approach in this book is where I would differ from Chaudini and some other people who might be discussing it in terms of persuasion. It's just pure persuasion. I'm trying to change your mind. I want, yes, I want both people's minds to change by the end of this conversation, but I want to do it through, we both are non-judgmentally listening and holding a space for us to engage in a type of thinking and reasoning that is difficult to do by yourself. And people often go to therapy to experience it, but there's a way to just do it in any conversation. And the academic pursuits that have leaned into this are the ones that have given us the best results because a person reasoning alone typically just argues with themselves over and over and wins. And to fall back on my previous work, I want you to be wrong. I want you to see how wrong you are, but I want you to share that with another person in a way that gives you both the opportunity to arrive at something greater than winning a debate, which is truth or understanding maybe your attitude is harmful in some way or is causing harm, or there's a way that your attitude could be reframed. Or if your values could, if another person's value set is informed by something you weren't aware of, then maybe you could reevaluate your own. It's an opportunity for clarity in a way I think is useful. If two people disagree on what restaurant to go to, and it turns out that one of the reasons why the person doesn't want to go to your restaurant is because it's closed. If they <laughs> point out that it's closed, like this should not be seen as something that, that should bother you. It should be like, thank you so much. You just saved me a trip. But people don't see, they're not looking for the informational content or the yeah, fresh perspectival yeah. content that others might bring to the table. And further to your point about like, could bad people be doing this for bad reasons? The way I see this is if your goal is to get to arrive at the, a more clear understanding of the truth, if we're talking about a factual matter, is the earth round. Like this conversation should get us both closer to what their actual answer to that question is. If you think it's flat and I think it's round, let's see, wow, I wonder why we disagree. And somewhere in there, hopefully what will be evoked is how you are, what are the motivations you're bringing this? Why did you arrive at your conclusions? That's for truth-based matters. For attitudinal-based things where like we could talk about, if you're worried about very heinous people in this world coming in and trying to affect people's attitudes that could lead to the harm down the line. I still am very optimistic that if you employ techniques like I talk about in this book, deep canvassing and motivational interviewing and street epistemology and those things, that the end result usually is coming to an understanding that your attitude is motivated by mm -hmm. something. And if it's motivated by prejudice, if it's motivated by anxieties that are related to prejudice, if it's motivated by hate or desire to cause harm, this will be evoked in that conversation space, hopefully. Now, if it's two Nazis having this conversation, they're not going to arrive at, oh, we're the bad guys. Yeah. 
Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I do understand the hesitation in here. And I would never suggest that the, this book creates some sort of magic pill that's going to make the world a better place with, without there being a zillion caveats for any persuasion can be employed for coercive purposes. And we have to avoid that for sure. Well, I think at the heart of the book is this idea that facts don't really move the needle much for most people. Yeah, I'm trying to get you to stop doing that, is what I've tried to do. Because ultimately, the facts encounter a framework. They encounter an interpretive scheme that people have. And so the same facts are going to be looked at very differently. And I think the deeper point you're making is that this, which I found fascinating, is that this interpretive frameworks, it's like interpretive frameworks all the way down, even to your primary sensations. Mm -hmm. And so at the core of the book is this description of the dress test, right? And I was wondering if you could just describe that set of research, because I found the idea that we're ultimately kind of Bayesian reasoners to some degree. Mm. And so in the, in the earlier books, you talk about priming and you talk about, oh, isn't this crazy? Look at this priming. But since we're all correlation machines and for good reason, the fact yeah. that priming works is it's a feature, not a bug, right? We highlight yeah, yeah. cases where priming is going to lead you astray, but ultimately if we didn't have priming, then I mean, it would overtax our computational resources, right? Priming is just about setting you up to focus on the things that you should expect to be focusing on right, in a given situation. I love the dress. You can probably tell in this book, and I do apologize for my incessant ranting in this interview because you caught me right after my second cup of coffee. So I was like, I want to talk about the stuff I'm obsessed about. Let me step back for a second and, and talk about the dress. And the dress is there in the book for this reason. I knew I wanted this book to be on the ground. I didn't want it to be Wikipedia with jokes or read that way. I wanted it to be not just a bunch of literature that I read and translated and said, look at this. I wanted to go out on the ground, meet people in person and start the book, not having the answers to the questions that I was asking. And you say, would you come with me and help and while I go figure this out? And I love that approach. And I'm probably right that way in all my future book work. But when it came to talking about, well, okay, let's get way reductionist here and build up from it. How do you get on the ground with that? And I was very lucky to meet Pascal Wallace at an event that I did in New York City. And I was talking about the stuff I was working on. And a lot of people there at NYU said, you need to talk to Pascal. He is researching the dress. And I was like, I have no idea why I would. I'm like, that's interesting. I could see myself doing a podcast about that. But how does that relate to this? And they're like, talk to Pascal and you'll see. So that's what happens. And in the book, you come with me as I visit them and they lay it all out as to what they discovered. To set the stage for this, there are these two principles in pedagogy and psychology, assimilation and accommodation. And this goes back to Piaget. I mean, this is not, it's not new. And these are the twin pistons of how we change our minds. It's how knowledge is created as far as if you want to get in that space. Genetic epistemology Mm -hmm. by Piaget. He had this great model and I love it. And it's assimilation is disambiguating novel and uncertain information. So you can make sense of it using your previous model, basically seeing a way that this fits in the model. Whereas accommodation is, oh, this is too anomalous to fit in my model. I must accommodate it in some way. A good example to make for, to get out of all these psychological mishmash terms is if a child sees a dog for the first time and they like, they point at it and you say, yeah, dog. And Something categorical happens in there. It's a non-human. It's naked. It's covered in fur, walks on four legs. Dog. Got it. Okay, cool. Some sort of schema is forming. Then later on, the same child sees a horse. They might do something. They might be a very advanced child and say, big dog, Mm -hmm. right? They're attempting to assimilate it. This is another example of the model I've already created, but it's a slight variation of it and I can fit it right in there. 
and you say, no, 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 not dog. That's a horse. Well, this requires accommodation now. Like there's an attempt to assimilate, but we can accommodate it. And to accommodate, you really must expand your mind. You must create a new category in which both dog and horse can fit. So you've expanded the schema and the model of things. And they may not have a word for it yet, but the word will end up being something like creature or animal or mammal maybe, because this gets very taxonified and very categorical. And it probably is a recapitulation that the way we organize the natural world through taxonomies and through all these flowcharty things we do probably just plugs in really well with the way that we make sense of things intuitively and categorically and the associative architecture of how we build these very complex models of reality and schemas that play along with each other. So that's assimilation and accommodation. And we're always doing it in this conversation. We're doing it. We're doing it every single time we encounter new information. You can imagine yourself, say, walking into your kitchen this afternoon and there's like a little marching band of of frogs in there. You wouldn't say, oh, that's something that can happen. You'd think, okay, wait, somebody's playing a trick on me. I've been drugged. That's a hologram. What's happened? Like you're going to try to assimilate it. You're going to try to make it fit into your existing understanding of things. And should you try to cock every part of the boat and you still can't stop taking on water, you're going to have to accommodate and say, turns out frogs can play in marching bands. But I imagine that's going to take a lot of effort on your part. So we're always doing that. Even let's say we have a politician we hate does something nice. Mm -hmm. Like we'll find a way to, we're not going to say they're nice now. We're going to say, oh, every once in a while, a clock's right twice a day, all sorts of stuff Mm -hmm. we do. Once your model gets really complex, you're going to, since we favor assimilation first, Mm -hmm. because what we want to keep, it's got us this far. There's no need to dump it in the ocean. It's working for us. Once your model is very complex, it becomes very difficult to accommodate. You have to build up a lot of anomalies. And that's how we go from that ship of Theseus thing you were talking about earlier to having these epiphanous experiences. It's like a paradigm shift, right? Yeah, very similar. Because And they're only because it's functionally, what's happening is you have to build up so many anomalies that it becomes the risk versus reward flips, where you're like, it's now risky for me not to update this my This is model. like what you said in the Bruner playing card example i yeah. love that experiment right where the god that's my that is shot right up to my top yeah. three experiments of all time for anyone who's not familiar the bruner postman experiment was in the 50s in harvard and they would have they had a group of subjects they put up on the screen a, a playing card and they gave them a little thing to click and they said when you identify the color and suit of the card press the button say so out loud press the button we we'll give you another card now of course what they were actually studying was how your response times and what they weren't telling the subjects is that they were messing with the cards. So they would look at it and be like, red ace, red king of hearts, click. And they would go through, click, click, click. But they would start putting in there things like black ace of hearts. And they would go click. And as they increased, because they could modulate it, they could, as they increased the number of off-color cards, in- incorrectly suited and everything, the response times would start to slow down. They, they would, would still call it hearts. But they would still call it still out. Call it, yeah. <laughs> they would name it. They'd click the button, but the response would get slower. And eventually they had reached this perceptual crisis, as they described it, where they would go, I don't know what's going on, but I'm scared. Like they really said things in this experiment. My God, I don't know what a spade looks like anymore. Or it didn't even look like a card that time. That's a real quote from it. They would shout and scream. They had no idea why they were freaking out. And then it would be right at that moment that was always right before they'd go, oh, I see what you're doing. Some of these cards are different colors. And their response time, as it was getting slower and slower and slower, would then return to baseline. And charted out, what's happening here is you're watching assimilation accommodation take place. They're trying to fit it into their current model, so much so they don't even see it as an anomaly. 
it's like imagining a sci-fi story where there's aliens all around, but you don't even see them because you're just fitting them into the model you already have. Then the anomaly is built up to the point where cognitively the brain is like, we're at a point now where either you, if you don't change your mind, we could be in trouble. But if you do change your mind, we could be in trouble. There's a dopaminergic response where we're locking up and paying attention and entering into a state of active learning. And it's at that point that they have that fierce response, but really they're just having this, hey, pay attention moment. And then they update their model and they create a new category. Cards can be different colors. And I know that now. And it's the moment they realize they could be wrong, they stop being wrong because they have a new model. And an epiphany, the long story short of that is an epiphany is the moment you realize you have changed your mind. It's not the moment you change your mind. It's the moment you realize you have already changed your mind because it's a shocking, thrilling, visceral experience. And it needs to be because... It's just like if you saw the frogs in your kitchen, yeah. you shouldn't just walk past that. You should stop and go, whoa, 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 whoa. So that <laughs> surprise is evolutionarily beneficial. So how does the dress play into this? If anybody remembers the dress, and I haven't met anybody who hasn't, in 2015, a, an image of a dress went viral on all social media, so viral that it broke the internet for a little while. Twitter wouldn't load on people's phones, and it was the most trending thing, the most hashtag trending thing. It was just, it was on local news. It was a thing. And the Washington Post called it the argument that broke the internet. I find that very quaint, considering it presaged what was about to happen as far as our internet arguments were going to go. It's a dress that when you look at it, it looks black and blue, or it looks white and gold. And that's it. It's just a picture that when you look at it, it looks black and blue or white and gold. The thing that was shocking was thanks to social media, people could discover that the way I see it is not the way you see it necessarily. If I see it as black and blue, you might see it as white and gold, but I can't do anything about that. It's not like one of those optical illusions where you can look at it a little one way or the other. The way you see it is the way you see it and you can't unsee it that way and you can't see it the way the other person sees it. And it created arguments right, where people were like, what's wrong with you? It's very obviously this color, not that color. So the duck rabbit thing, we all understand that, but you can kind of flip it on and off. And there are other optical illusions I use in my class sometimes where something goes from pure static to an image. And when it goes from pure static to an image, then you can never go back to the static. So that's a little bit different from the... And those are disambiguation. Uh, Disambiguation is a very important word in all of this. When your mental systems, when your brain faces ambiguity, either it remains ambiguous and you move about your day, or there's an attempt to disambiguate it. And you'll disambiguate it using your priors. And the dress is in this place, but it adds to our understanding of how disambiguation works because as they were trying to understand it, they asked me, what is an object that you could identify it in black and white, but everybody would see it as a different color? I thought of a lot of different things, but they had worked on this problem a long time to try to replicate the dress. And they had arrived at with Crocs. Because mm-hmm. if you take an image of Crocs and you make it black and white, and I ask you, what color do you think the Crocs are? It's very nicely randomized. Some people will say blue and pink and orange. Who knows? There's no ground truth mm-hmm. of the color of a Croc. It's not like a fire truck that you, most people would say it's red. So with the dress, they wanted to understand what was going on here. And they did this wonderful study, 13,000 participants, open source, so everybody can see their methods. It can be replicated. They did all sorts of vetting throughout this. The Pascal Wallach and Michael Kolovich had both worked in the worlds of color science, vision, perception, that sort of thing. And what they discovered was that more often, uh, the image is overexposed and we probably don't intuitively know this about ourselves, but we have had experience with overexposure our entire lives. 
But our experiences with overexposure are not the same. Some of us have, if every time we've seen an orange, for example, if it has been overexposed, it's been overexposed in sunlight or skylight. Yeah. Other people who've seen an orange their whole lives, when it has been overexposed, it's more likely that it's been overexposed in incandescent light or light from artificial sources. And those emphasize different parts of the spectrum. The light that comes from the sky is, has more blue as we would, you know, the electromagnetic, there's plenty of science we could dive, mm-hmm. re- reduce this down to, but blue, let's say blue. Whereas incandescent light is mostly on the yellow side of things. Unbeknownst to us, when something is overexposed, brains do a thing called subtract the luminant or subtract the illuminant, depending on who's writing the research paper. And the why would we do this? There's lots of hypotheses. Some say it was so we can identify fruit in low light conditions. Others say blood. The result of it is that you can go into your closet right now with the lights off and tell what's green and what's blue. That's because you're increasing the luminant. You're photoshopping your experience. That also, that's why in a very bright day, you can make out what's going on in front of you because you're subtracting the luminance. So unbeknownst in our subjective experience, between perception and subjective reality, there is an editing phase that takes place where visual systems and cognitive systems do not give you the truth of your perception as if there is truth in there in the first place. We're all getting bits and pieces of this thing and turning it into brain signals, but it's being edited along the way in ways that you may not be aware. So... This is what's happening with address, which creates this very unique system. The duck rabbit and the, I think it's called the, the Niker vase. Those are called interpersonal bistable perceptual illusions, which means it's ambiguous, but it can be disambiguated one way or the other. And every brain tends to disambiguate it one way or the other, because we tend to have rich shared priors when it comes to ducks and rabbits. And this is something different as an intrapersonal bistable perceptual illusion, which means my way of disambiguating it might not be your way of disambiguating it. And that's because this is based off of overexposure priors, which is something that most of us aren't even aware we have. So let's say they took all these subjects and they found that what correlated was people who spent more time around sunlight or worked around windows or woke up early in the day. And that was the thing that was highest correlation was they were early risers. They tended to see the dress as overexposed in sunlight. They subtracted blue in what they get back it was overexposed in more blue light and you get a yellow and white dress, golden white. People who have spent more time in incandescent light, they see it overexposed in yellowish tones. The brain subtracts that luminate, leaves you behind this black and blue dress. And you're not aware of any of that. And to me, that's the biggest takeaway is that all of this is happening outside of your conscious awareness to the point that you just receive it. And it's just the truth of your experience. And when it's the truth of your experience in that way, and you're unaware of all the things that influence that. When another person gets a completely different truth of their experience, my reaction is not to immediately go, oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I wonder why we disagree yeah. about this. My reaction is, you're very wrong. And you have to be wrong because I cannot help but see this the way I see it. And if I can't help but see it the way I see it, that means that it is the ground truth of the matter. I have to pull this up in front of me because I, they call it surf pad. And I don't want to mess yeah. this up. Their model of this is substantial uncertainty in the presence of ramified or forked priors or assumptions leads to substantial disagreement. Ramified just means branching. What it comes down to is when a situation is incredibly ambiguous like this, neither side is going to experience it as ambiguous. That's what makes this problematic. Both sides are going to disambiguate it without their knowledge and arrive at what feels like the truth. The ambiguity never registers, which causes a lot of problems in our discourse Because all of your priors and experiences are giving you a very beautiful disambiguation of something that 
you never realize could be interpreted in many different ways. And you could obviously extrapolate this out to many different things that we argue about in the world. And my final thing I'll say about the dress is in our conversation here is that Pascal and Michael were both adamant that weirder things have happened in history where how I see the dress versus how you see it could be a little grain that forms a pearl of cultural connection and social identity that could eventually lead to two sides of a war that started a thousand years ago about the dress. The idea is that once you give people an opportunity to group up via disambiguation, like it can lead to mm-hmm. all these downstream psychological things that we experience. So I would hope people understand that I put that in the book early on because I want you to know about assimilation, accommodation, all these things. But more so, I want you to realize that there are ambiguities in life that never register as ambiguities. And when we disagree with other people, it could be as a result of that. That is so profound for me, in part because there's an optimistic and a pessimistic interpretation. The optimistic interpretation is that we can shape and sculpt our perspectives. But the other thing, the pessimistic is that there's a limit to it. I like to pride myself, as so many philosophically inclined people do, I pride myself on being able to approach an issue from multiple perspectives and inhabit those perspectives as much as possible and circumnavigate every issue. But I think what this is saying to some degree is that you can't, right? What I wanted to hear from about Pascal's research is, have they taken somebody who had one view of the dress and then give them some light therapy and then have them... <laughs> They're doing this now. Yeah. If you could say to yourself, hey, I really want to see the world through the green person's eyes. Let me go and hang <laughs> yeah. out in the sun lamp for a couple of hours and then come back and take a look at it. Go, oh, there we go. And give myself the ability to look at the... There's got to be a limit to that, right? There's certain things... Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. That they're doing that now. That's where they've taken this research is that they tried to replicate it first, which they did with socks and Crocs. They were able to, they took, they overexposed yeah. pink, pink Crocs and green light and green socks and pink light, but the socks are white. So the socks reflect back most of the light that's coming in. But when you have the colors they chose will not reflect back most of it. So they appear gray. They take a picture of it. They show it to people. But some people, when they look at it, they will see it as gray socks, gray Crocs with the color of the light. Let's say green. They'll say gray. They'll see gray Crocs and green socks. Whereas other people will see pink Crocs and white socks, even though they shouldn't be able to see that because that's not what's in the image. But that comes down to how much experience you have with colored socks. And that also correlates to how old you are. And it's really fascinating work. The next place they want to take it, though, is could we take one of these sort of neutral things that people don't have a lot of experience with and give them experience with it and then put them back into the mix of this and see the outcome. And I think obviously their hypothesis would be, yeah, it's going to be possible to make it with enough experience to see things through other people's perspectives without having them to have the conversation with that person, just have the experiences that lead to those priors. But they, we don't know yet. That's what we all would think philosophically. We would hope Mm -hmm. they're going to actually try to test it in a way that sort of can be quantified. One day, maybe we'll have a chain of perspectival CrossFit training facilities where you can go down on the weekend and subject yourself to all of these things. And I'm writing that down. It's good. You know, don't get injected with this hormone or that hormone or get this or that and then say, oh, okay, now I get it. Now I see where people are coming from. And that would really help us engage in better empathy. David, look, these books are great. Really enjoyed them and especially enjoyed going back to them. I reread this one on the plane yesterday. Which, oh, that's uh, so cool. Which is uh, super cool. And this book, How Minds Change. Highly recommend it. Appreciate you for joining me. Hopefully we'll see you again when you come out to Berkeley in person next time. Anytime. Next time. I should be out there in a few weeks and I'll send you an email and see if we can do cool stuff. All right. Thanks so much. Talk soon. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com.